Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and turn our service into a wedding feast, that you would let your abundance and joy flow through us this morning as we gather around the Word of God to hear it explained and hear it lifted up to guide us into your presence. Lord, I pray that you would take the plain water of human speech and turn it into the wine of the preached Word of God. I pray, Lord, that we would all go away from this service in general and from this time around your word in particular, saying that we have tasted the best wine. So come, Holy Spirit, now and fill this place. Empower me, the preacher of the word, to speak to the congregation that is gathered to hear. And empower all of us to be receivers of the good news and then to go out and to live it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I see that you've... Uh, You've braved the snowpocalypse of 2016. A snowflake fell from the skies, and now there's no bread or milk in any grocery store in Winston-Salem. <laughs> Thanks be to God. We, we made it. We made it. We're here. I love this passage from the Gospel of John that we read today. It's a part of this epiphany season where we see God's glory revealed manifest in Jesus Christ. You know, the Gospel of John is, is unique among the four Gospels of the New Testament. The four first New Testament books are called Gospels. And those Gospels are, are a kind of biography, but they're a particular kind of bi biography that was created by Christian writers. Nobody had ever written a story like this before. They were designed to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. They told the story of Jesus in a way that would bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And the first three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all seem to see the life and ministry of Jesus in very similar ways. Sometimes, as a matter of fact, you'll even get identical passages between one or two and sometimes maybe even three of those Gospels. You'll hear some of it the exact, almost the exact same words in each of those Gospels. And so because they see things the same way, they are called synoptic. Sin, you know, like symphony, like to, to be synthetic, to bring things together, to synthesize, and optic, to, to see. So they see the life and ministry of Jesus similarly. But the Gospel of John is strange. It's different. And the early church knew that it was strange and different. And yet they heard the faithful telling of the good news of Jesus Christ in this gospel. And they knew that it was the inspired infallible word of God. And the church received it very, very early on. John is a different kind of gospel. It writes, John, the, the gospel writer, tells the story of Jesus on two levels. And the people who encounter Jesus in the gospel tend to encounter Jesus on two levels. They encounter Jesus, first of all, on a very surface, sort of obvious, materialistic level. But then John wants, to see us, wants us to see that there is a deeper spiritual significance, maybe even a deeper symbolic spiritual significance that takes us to a whole nother level of truth the truth about who God is and how God has come to us in Jesus Christ. And so we have, the best example of that would be, um, you, you know the story of Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, and who came to meet Jesus at night. This is in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus at night. He said, teacher, you know, we know that you're a teacher sent by God because, because no one could do the works you do unless he were from God, etc. And the first thing Jesus says to Nicodemus was, well, you know, Nicodemus, Unless a, more, a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Nicodemus 
thinking in a very, you know, I was thinking about this uh, in the first service. If we did Nicodemus's Myers-Briggs, he, is, he does not have the intuitive letter. He's a censor. He, so he takes, him very, takes Jesus very literally and he says, What, shall a man enter a second time to his mother's womb to be born? I mean, how literalistic can you be? And yet that's what people seem to hear when they hear things that Jesus says in John's gospel. But, of course, Jesus is talking about being born again spiritually, a spiritual new birth. And that's the way the gospel of John is written. Well, in John, we need to be aware of what's occurring on the surface, but we also need to be aware of what's happening on a symbolic level. In fact, so much of this is symbolic content. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if you realize this or not, there are no miracles in the Gospel of John. There's no miracles in the Gospel of John. Now, wait a second. Didn't I just hear Jesus do a miracle of turning water into wine? Well, yes, there are mighty acts, supernatural works of God, but John goes out of his way not to use the word miracle. He wants, he wants us to see something deeper than just a mighty work of God, which is wonderful. He calls them, listen, signs. Simeon is, uh, Simeonis, uh, I think, is the uh, Greek word. Uh, it's where we get the term semionics, which, you know, I'm sure you all studied that in college, semionics, yeah. Well, anyway, um, it's about symbolism, sign. And so uh, Jesus doesn't do miracles in John, even though he's obviously doing mighty works of God. He does miraculous signs. And what do signs do? They point to Signs point to something, and that's what the miracles of Jesus in John's gospel are all about. They point us to deeper significance, and that's where we are today in this gospel of John. We want to see the deeper spiritual reality of the changing of the water into wine. What does that mean? And, of course, this whole story begins at a wedding feast. So on the surface level, Jesus, we find Jesus at a party. One of the wonderful things for me as a follower of Jesus Christ is that Jesus goes to so many parties. I am so excited about that. You know, uh, this is, we've incorporated this. This is a part of our evangelistic paradigm at Christ Church. Well, obviously, we have to have parties. And seriously, I think more people have come, uh, become, begun their journey into being a follower of Jesus through a party what somebody's life group has or we have as a church through this church than any other means of, of, um, of outreach that I can think of. But Jewish wedding feasts, Jewish parties like this were very important. In the era that we're talking about here, Jewish wedding feasts usually lasted about a week. And during that time, there was eating and drinking and dancing and laughing and singing. It was a wonderful experience. And if you've ever been to a really good wedding party, uh, people who should never dance will dance. Like me. <laughs> uh, uh, right now, you know, Chuck and Kelsey have, have kind of got a favorite spot in my heart because that was one of the best wedding parties I've ever been to was their wedding party. So that was great. And that's what happened at these wedding feasts, except they lasted for days and days and days. And that's where Jesus is in this story. But remember, John wants to see a deeper meaning than just a wedding feast. John is a Jewish Christian writing to other Jewish Christians. And when they heard the term wedding feast, they didn't just think about the surface event. They also thought about and remembered the wonderful fulfillment of God's kingdom when all of creation is renewed and there will be a new heavens and a new earth because that's what wedding feast meant to them. They were anticipating... The wedding banquet of the Lamb, or the great messianic banquet for Old Testament believers. 
In the parables of the, of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus often uses marriage feasts as a description of what things are going to be like at the end of time. And when all of God's people are gathered into God's kingdom in joy. And so in the book of Revelation, the joy of God's final victory is expressed like this. Listen, this comes from Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So the sign that Jesus performs here in Cana of Galilee isn't about curing the lame or raising the dead. John instead wants us to see that what Jesus does here, and here's the critical point if you're going to understand about where we're going to go in this sermon, it is a preview of the eschaton. Yay, eschaton. Is that like a new Toyota car? No, the eschaton. Eschaton means the end, the end of time, but not in a bad way. It means the great banquet of the Lamb of God at the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And so this story is about God's fulfillment in his kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. But there's a problem, and there's tension in this story. And the problem is it happens when the wine runs out. That's bad in any situation. But on the surface level, running out of wine is a disaster in that it dishonored this newly married couple in this Jewish setting. But we have to look deeper than just the fact that they ran out of wine. The problem, of the, wine, the problem of the wine is where we come to this, this interesting, in fact, it's a bit jarring exchange between Jesus and his mother. There's this weird exchange. You, kinda, you heard it in the reading of the gospel this morning. It just sounds odd. Mary goes to Jesus. Of course, she's never named. It's just, she's just called his mother. It says the mother of Jesus went to him and said, they have no wine. And basically, he says, what do you want me to do about it? (laughs) No, he said, here's what he says. Literally, he says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, first of all, when we hear somebody address woman, uh, we, we think that's disrespectful. You need to know that the idiom, the way it was used in Aramaic at this time, the word would have been comparable to saying madam. It wouldn't have been, it would not have been, I know, look, if I come up to somebody like, I don't know, any, any random female like somebody I'm married to, and say, woman, things will not go well for me after that, generally. But at least this was not a term of disrespect, it was, but it's an odd term, an odd way to speak to his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, here, we've got to peel some layers back here. Mary only shows up two times in the Gospel of John. She shows up here once at the beginning of the gospel, at the wedding feast, and she shows up at the, at the end of the gospel when Jesus is on the cross. And she's there, and Jesus commends her to the beloved disciple, woman, behold your son, son, behold your woman. And from that day forward, or from that hour, he took her into her, his home. In all the cases, in both those cases, Mary is never referred to by name. Her name, Mary, is never mentioned in the entire book of John, ever. Instead, she is only called 
woman, woman, what does this have to do with me? Woman, behold your son. Now, while, as I said, it's not disrespectful in the Aramaic idiom for her to be addressed that way, it is highly unusual for a man to address his mother like this. In fact, it's so unusual that nowhere else in all of Scripture, Old or New Testament, do we have an example of a son referring to his mother as woman. And so if I'm listening to this passage as today as a Christian, but certainly as an early Christian listening to this passage, I'm going to say, what is going on here? That's strange. You're drawing my attention, Holy Spirit. You're drawing my attention to a deep truth here. What could it be? We'll get ready to go really deep. Let me ask you this. How does the gospel of John begin? It begins exactly like the book of, listen, like the book of Genesis begins. The book of Genesis says, in the beginning. John says, in the beginning. And so John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's what John is saying. By opening his book this way and by other clues he gives us throughout his gospel, we'll mention a couple in a minute maybe, he's telling us, I am telling you the good news about Jesus who is bringing in this who is God the Word come among us who is starting his new creation. A new creation begins with the appearing of Jesus Christ. And this story somehow, John is wanting us to know, is related to this new creation. John links his gospel with the story of the creation. John wants us to see Jesus as the one who brings about the new creation. We see that clearly demonstrated. As a matter of fact, here's the example. um, Let me ask you this. Where is the tomb of Jesus on resurrection day? Remember that? In, In John's gospel, where is it? It's in a garden. He is the only gospel writer to mention that the tomb was in a garden. And who does Mary Magdalene, one of the disciples of Mary, of, of Jesus, who does Mary Magdalene uh, think Jesus is when he, she encounters the risen Jesus in the garden? She thinks he is the gardener. Hmm, who was the gardener in the first garden? Oh, that would have been Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. He is the new Adam. So here's the deal. John wants us to see that this is a new creation story. Now, if we go back to the first creation, guess what? Eve is never called by name in the entire creation account of Genesis. It's only after Eve and Adam rebel against God, disobey God, that in Revelation 3, verse 20, um, and Adam named his wife Eve, for she was to be the mother of all the living. So, it's after all the creation story that she finally gets a name. But through the creation account from Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, she is called the woman. She is woman. The woman. And throughout the story here, Mary is only referred to as woman. The woman. Here's the kicker. And this, you now you need to listen to this. I'm going to kind of preempt myself a little bit. This is really not about Mary. This is about what's going on with Jesus. But let me tell the story. John wants us to see Mary as the new Eve, and he's very specific about it. At Cana, the new Eve radically reverses the decision of the first Eve. The first woman was the catalyst that led the first Adam to commit his first act of evil in the garden. 
At Cana, the new woman serves as a catalyst for the new Adam, the last Adam, to perform his first glorious work. The first Eve is associated with the disobedience of Adam when he chooses to defy God and eat of the fruit. But the new Eve and Mary's, listen, Mary's only recorded words in all of John's gospel, the words he only thought were worth putting down in his gospel from Mary were these, do whatever he tells you. Mary preaches obedience. The new Eve is preaching obedience to Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. So this is what John is saying. Listen, look at the, look, all the players for the creation are here. The woman and the man. So what is going on with Jesus and what are we seeing at the Canaan uh, feast? Jesus is beginning God's new creation in this moment. That's what's going on here. We're going to know about what the world is supposed to be like in God's new creation. And we're going to know some other really amazing things as well because there's even more depth than this to explore here. Remember those six stone jars that were used for ritual cleansing that was required by the law, the Jewish Torah? It was mentioned in this book, in this gospel, six stone jars. John says these sticks are... Uh, John, I, want, I would say that John uses these six stone jars to show the deficiencies of the law. Now, think about this. It, it says, Jesus, when he commanded the servants, he said, fill them to the brim, which means what? They were empty. <laughs> They're dry. Those stone jars were dry. As a matter of fact, I would say they could be even associated with shame because we have the sense of uh, the emptiness of the wedding feast. The wine is gone. There's nothing in those pots either. But Christ fills the jar. Here it is. Christ fills the jars of the Torah, of the law, and transforms the contents to abundance and joy. He didn't say smash those stone jars. He said to fill those stone jars and make something new and better. He's not destroying the law. Jesus is fulfilling it. The six, six stone jars show that Jesus fills the vessel of Judaism with new wine. Before, they were for ritual cleanliness, a legalistic attempt to be made right with God by doing good deeds, washing my hands, trying to be clean before God so he won't smite me. I don't want to be smited, so I better get clean. It's associated with legalism and guilt and fear. But now they're not vessels for cleanliness. They are, hear me, they are, a, they are vessels literally overflowing with joy. God doesn't just clean you up when he takes you into his family. He makes you joyful. It's not just about, it's not just about getting God not to, look, it's not about, there's a huge difference between thinking about God as just not being mad at me anymore, I'm glad I'm off his list, to thinking God delights so much in me that he wants me to rejoice and be full of joy and abundance. He grants me abundance and joy in my life. Now, we got to think about this real quick, too. There's, there's six stone jars that were used for ritual cleansing. That means that Jesus ends up making approximately, get ready for it, 180 gallons of wine. 
They went from no wine to 180 gallons of wine. What do you do with 180 gallons of wine? I mean, for a period of time there, Cana could probably be a major wine exporting city for the rest of Galilee. 180 gallons of wine. Here's the deal. We're talking about God's new creation, the kingdom, coming about through Jesus Christ. This is what John wants you to hear through the sign that Jesus does. Please listen, Christian brothers and sisters. The Christian life, the kingdom of God, is to be one of overflowing abundance and joy. Abundance and joy. And the devil has convinced some of us it's about scarcity. We have been convinced that we, I mean, it's interesting when churches, we're, we're an eight-year-old church this past week, as a matter of fact. We started eight years ago. And let me tell you, when churches are brand new, when they're newborn baby churches, they're crazy. They're like pioneers, you know, like Jeremiah Johnson, or as I called him, Jeremiah Livereaton Johnson. Uh, but we won't go into that story about Jeremiah Johnson. He was a pioneer. All these frontiers people, remember those frontiers people, those men and women who went out and just left everything normal behind and braved dangerous territory to start new things and to do new things. But over a period of time, they, uh, people shift from being pioneers and they become settlers. And settlers have different values than pioneers. I want to tell you something. This happens in churches, too. Pioneers take risks. Pioneers are willing to do unexpected things. Pioneers are ready to break new territory. But after a while, we get hunkered down and we become settlers, and we, be- we begin to move from thinking that somehow there is, an, there is a whole frontier of abundance. I'm moving. I'm leaving back home because that's where the scarcity was back in the you know, 13 original colonies. Back in that Moravian settlement of Winston, I don't know, maybe they didn't have enough of something, but I know there's an abundance of land and game as far as the eye can see, and I'm heading out. I'm taking my family. We're leaving. After a while, though, churches begin to think about life this way, too. They think about abundance at the beginning, and then they start to think about scarcity, and they begin to make make decisions thinking that the God they serve is not a God of abundance, but a God of lack. And scarcity, and they stop doing exciting, pioneering things where people are reached with the gospel. The thing that we hear in this passage is that God is a God of abundance, 180 gallons of wine. And not only is there overflowing abundance, it's better than what came before it. Look, everybody knows that if you're having a wedding party, you start out with the good stuff, and it's only at the end of the party that you bring out the two-buck chuck. You know, that's, that's after everybody's drunk, their palate is all over with. Yeah, two bucks, yes, yeah, it's, it's cheap wine from Trader Joe's. Yes. Uh, it's good for cooking. Uh, but this is better than anything that has come before it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The new creation that Jesus inaugurates is one of overflowing joy and abundance. Jesus offers the best wine, and his followers have it even in the midst of a fallen world that is hostile to Jesus and hostile to his church. The right Reverend Peter Doyle, who is the um, bishop of Northampton in, in 
uh, England, in the UK. Uh, I heard a story about him on the BBC a, a while back. He had gone to Pakistan shortly after one of the major earthquakes that they have. There's a place that's really, um, I think there was a major earthquake here in that area not too long ago, but uh, there was a bad earthquake, a lot of destruction, a lot of people were, were injured and killed, actually. But he went to the Christian regions of Pakistan to check on those Christian villages. Now, what you've got to know about Pakistan is that predominantly the Christian villages tend to be in the most remote places in Pakistan. Uh, Christian, Christians account for only 2% of the population. They are systematically persecuted and oppressed in Pakistan. It is a bad place to have to be a Christian. They are oftentimes, they're the victims of what are called the blasphemy laws. So if your Muslim neighbor, and this happened to um, Azia Bibi, who was out working in a field one time and uh, did something that uh, uh, aggravated one of her Muslim co-workers, had, had to do with the dispute about who was going to get water out of the water pot as they were working in the field. They accused her of blasphemy, and so she was, she was jailed and sentenced to death. If you, get, if you get on the wrong side of your neighbor, all they have to do, if you're, if you're a Christian, all they have to do is accuse you of blasphemy. And they have blasphemy laws in Pakistan and you can be killed. It's a very, very difficult place. Christians serve the most menial jobs. They, they do things that nobody else will do. They can't work in the, in the mainstream. They tend to be very, very poor. So when uh, Bishop Doyle goes to one village, he goes to the village of Kachpur. In, in Pakistan. And as he's coming into the village, I guess they know that he's showing up, but he's coming into the village. I guess he's got, you know, I don't know, bishop clothes on or something, whatever that looks like. And, but the children, this is a Christian village, the children of the village come out meeting him dancing. They're dancing and they're praising God. They're dancing and singing songs of praise to God to meet the bishop. They're just full of incredible joy and he's kind of taken by the hand by those kids and they're, they're just pulling him dancing into their village. These persecuted, marginalized Christians who serve in the lowest parts of the society there, um, they named their, their village Kachpur, which by the way means, listen, happy. They named their village Happy. He went to another village. It was called, this one had the uh, very uh, imaginative name, imaginative name, uh, Village Number 7. That's what it was called, Village Number 7. And they were in Village 7. He traveled to a site of a new church that was being built of wooden poles and corrugated iron. And in the construction of this humble church, the whole village was contributing their labor and their materials. And they were expressing their commitment to Christ and their identity as Christians in in the process. But... Peter, uh, Bishop Peter said that the people worked with such joy and generosity, they offered him food from their common pot. The Christian community there uh, serves their Muslim neighbors in schools and clinics and homes of the handicapped, and they do it out of love and they do it out of joy in the face of scorn and even persecution for their service. And they do it. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody be happy in that situation? Because they were full of the best wine. They had drunk the best wine. And it doesn't matter where you are. If you're drinking from that wine, there's still an abundance and there's still joy. The wedding feast at Cana reveals something else. It says that Jesus' glory is revealed and his disciples believed in him. That word glory in the Old Testament actually describes in some way the being of God the present reality of God. The Hebrew, and as I indicated in the Old Testament for glory, is kavod. And it literally means wait, wait. And if you've ever been in a prayer service 
or if you've ever been in a worship service, or if you've maybe just been in, a, in your prayer closet, or maybe you were with a small group, and you began to pray, and you began to worship God, and all of a sudden, you had that palpable experience of the genuine, real presence of God descending upon you. You feel like you're being pressed down by weight. It's the glory of God. It's the presence of God. He said Jesus was revealed. His glory was revealed. Christ's glory, the second person of the Holy Trinity's glory, is manifested at the wedding feast. This tells us that this, if you want to know what the inner, God, inner life of God is like, what is the inner life of the Holy Trinity like, it's like what's happening at this wedding feast. There's dancing. Actually, one of the terms we use, you know this if you are, uh, come to Christ Church any length of time, that one of the terms used to describe the inner life of the Holy Trinity is perichoresis, perichoresis. And it means to dance around. So that the inner life of the Trinity, the inner life of the God that we know in Jesus Christ is like a dance, joyful dance. The glory of God is abundance. The glory of God is unity. The glory of God is joy in the other. The celebration that is the inner life of the Holy Trinity is a circle of love that is always expanding. It is the character of God that the love and joy of the Trinity pours itself out in love to create and to redeem. The party, brothers and sisters, is always supposed to be getting bigger. That's why we do evangelism. We want more people in the party. Come and enjoy what God is doing. Be a part of this wonderful celebration. Look, I, yes, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to flee. I understand that part. But um, the main thing here is there's a party. <laughs> don't miss the party. Why? I don't know why anybody, if this is really what God is like, why, don't you, why wouldn't you want to do this? What could, what could be better than this? The best one. We are always worried that there will not be enough to go around. But as the party gets bigger in the kingdom, the resources increase. They, Jesus and his disciples show up. It sounds like actually the way it's worded, like they were last-minute guests. Unexpected guests almost. The, the wine has run out. But the party has gotten bigger, and so God will increase what we need to enjoy. God's kingdom scarcity is swallowed up in abundance. And just when it looks like the supplies have run out, Jesus brings forth an endless supply of the best wine. John tells us this story to show us what life in Christ is like. This is what we are inviting people to when we offer them a relationship with Jesus Christ. What's a shame, dear brothers and sisters, what's a shame is when... The church manages to do something horrible, which is to do this, to turn following Jesus into something joyless. When we turn following Jesus into something joyless, that does not look like the wedding feast at Cana. Soren Kierkegaard, Danish theologian philosopher, said, Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It has turned wine into water. Don't let anybody turn your wine into water. If you have not embraced Jesus Christ as Lord, what on earth are you waiting for? Everything else that you will ever taste, and there, oh my goodness gracious, uh, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil think they run total wine. 
But that's not the good wine. Everything that the world, the flesh, and the devil offer, it seems so attractive. The packaging is great. Sometimes people will do that silly thing by choosing wine based on a label. It looks like it's going to be good. But it is insipid, and it is inferior, and it is an imitation of what Jesus alone offers. He offers the best wine. We today, this moment, whether you know it or not, are at the party. And at this table, we're going to be having a feast. The best wine is about to be served. Is a wine that allows us to share in the very life of Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters. At Cana, in Christ's presence, water became wine. In this meal, at Christ's word, wine becomes his presence. You are invited to the feast this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not yet time to come to the feast. It's time to meet the one who shares the feast with you. And so when we come to our time of Holy Communion, if you haven't met Christ personally and encountered him and accepted him by faith, it's your time in this moment when the feast is there and Christ is present with us at his table and we are gathered around him in joyful singing. It is at that moment that I want you to cry out to him and say, oh, Jesus, let me come to the wedding feast. I believe that you are. I believe that you are who you say you are. You are the son of God. You died for me and rose again. I repent of my life away from you, and I turn to a life full of you. Please receive me, and I receive you, Lord Jesus, now. And then, you know what you'll get? You'll get your wedding clothes. He gives you new clothes to go to the wedding feast. You'll get a fine robe that he himself will place on you, and he will welcome you to his table at that time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.